Today we do begin our new sermon series, Jonah, You Can Run But You Cannot Hide. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be spending time looking at each chapter. There are only four of the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is found in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture. It's one of the 12 minor prophets uh, following the book of Obadiah. And it's a, a story that I think a lot of us are familiar with, maybe. Uh, but there are pieces of it and parts of the story that we think we know but that are much more uh, different than we maybe remember. So today we're really going to spend some time uh, diving in to see what this story of Jonah says, not only to the church, but to each of us in our calling, in our responding, and in our living of our faith. So uh, let's join together in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of the book of Jonah, and we thank you uh, for this prophet Jonah and for the story of, of, of how he tried to avoid your call, but you kept on persistently leading him back to what you wanted him to do. God, we confess to you that that's often true in our lives. We procrastinate, we ignore, we forget, we put to the side, we, we are blind of ourselves to the things that we need to do, that you call us to do, and sometimes we do everything possible to avoid the thing that we need to do. And so, God, as we now open our very selves uh, to your word, as our hearts, our minds open to what you would say to us, we pray that this would be a morning of certainly challenge, that this would be a morning of, of kind of being called to task, but that also it would be a time of moving forward from a place of running away to a place of embracing your call. We come before you humble and ready to hear what you would say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I know we've all been in that place where uh, there, we have to do something. It's the thing we don't want to do, right? And if you're like me, if I have a thing that I must do, this task or this call or this visit or this project, well, I will often do anything I can to avoid it, right? I mean, I will uh, do other things. I'll take on other tasks. I'll, I'll go for a walk. I'll, I'll go shopping. I'll go online and spend hours on Amazon just to avoid the thing I don't have to do, right? And, and maybe you do that. Maybe there's something uh, you want to do. Like, for example, when it's time for me to deep clean the house, which I despise, I don't mind light cleaning. I'm good at windows. Call me anytime, right? But if I have to clean the bathrooms, I just despise it. I really do. I just hate it. And, uh, and so I will do everything possible I can, like clean other things or call people I don't even want to talk to or, or, or watch television or get caught up on Facebook or watch one reel after the reel or TikTok. You know what I'm saying? Just because then I go, oh, it's too late. I can't get to it. Now, I know you're all very holy and sacred. You never do that. But, but I often avoid whatever it takes. In fact, the other thing I don't really like is church conference, the annual meeting. It's just too many reports. I despise it. And the staff knows that. And I'll do everything possible to avoid filling out those forms. In fact, I'll say, Are, is there anybody in the hospital I need to visit? Begging for that, you know, so that I can get out of this task, right? So I think we all know about procrastinating or avoidance whenever we need to do the thing we do, like we need to go see the doctor, right? Or we need to make an appointment, and we don't want to. My endocrinologist, who I see four times a year, she's mean. I'm just going to be honest. And I don't. I hope she's not watching. Here we go. Um, uh, and she's tough. And I, I really don't look forward to going. 
And I will look for any excuse not to go. In fact, I kind of hope somebody calls and says, I need to see you today, Pastor. And I'll call her and say, I need to cancel my appointment. And I did that recently. I'm just confessing. I didn't really want to go. I knew she was going to have a lot to say about my weight and my numbers and all that. And so something came up and I, I, I took it. And I called her office and said, I'm going to have to reschedule. And they said, well, uh, Mr. President, it's going to be six to seven months. And I said, glory to God in the highest, right? You know. So uh, we all try to avoid from time to time something we don't want to do. And I, I'll go a little deeper here that especially when we're called to do a hard thing, especially when we're called to do a faith thing, especially when God is prompting us or, or, or nudging us or pushing or pulling us, we often do whatever it takes to flee. Oh, I'm too busy. My life, will, I'll do it when. Things will get better and then I'll be ready to step in. Or I don't want to deal with this. And we continue to flee, right? We continue to try to avoid this calling. And I want to say to you that I say this all the time. We're all called. This isn't just about a call to ordaining ministry. We're all called. God's calling us to something. And sometimes we say yes, and it's a glorious thing. But sometimes it, it seems like an impossible thing. But God, let me just assure you, if you read Psalm 139, I encourage you to do that. It doesn't matter where we go, where we flee, what we do. God will continually seek us out and continue to find us. You can run, but you cannot hide. So today we're going to look at this uh, sort of familiar story of Jonah. And I just want to give you a little background about Jonah. Again, a minor prophet, one of the 12. Uh, Jonah probably lived in the 8th century uh, in the northern kingdom. His name, Jonah or Yonah, means dove. Did you know that? How many of you knew that? It means dove. Um, and throughout some portions of Hebrew or Old Testament scripture, Israel is compared to a dove. So some scholars believe this story is really about Israel and Jonah's the, the character representing Israel. But whatever the case, Yonah means dove. Or a little bit of variation on the Hebrew word, at the same time, this is so interesting, can mean destroyer or oppressor. Isn't that interesting? Just a little nuancing and the word has a different story. His dad's name is Amitai, which you heard read so beautifully. And uh, Amitai means uh, truth or righteousness. So either Jonah is the dove of truth or righteousness, or he's the destroyer of truth or righteousness, right? And it says a little bit about his name. So he was a prophet, uh, this book located in the Hebrew Bible. He comes from a small town called Goth Hefer, uh, which is just west of the Sea of Galilee, right? Um, and for those of you who are on the Holy Land trip, if you remember when we were on the precipice outside of Nazareth, we were not too far from Goth Hefer. And Goth Hefer is a small town just west of the Sea of Galilee in the north, right? That's important because he's not near Jerusalem or any of those kind of familiar cities, and he's located in the kingdom of Israel. He's only mentioned in one other place, 2 Kings verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 25, in which he's lifted up as a prophet during the reign of the king Jeroboam II, who reigned from 786 to 746. And let's talk a little bit about uh, politics of the day. Remember after Solomon, King Solomon, do you remember him, David's son? Are you awake out there? Do we need to bring in coffee? Okay, here we go. Uh, Solomon died and the kingdom split in half. And a good number of the tribes in the north became the northern kingdom or Israel, right? And they had their own capital and they were toward the north. 
Eventually, they'll later become the Samaritans, but that's another story, right? Okay. The southern two tribes became the kingdom of Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. So, uh, Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and he lives in this small town west of the Sea of Galilee, and he is a prophet to King Jeroboam II. You have learned a lot already, right? Here we go. So, now what we do, two other things I want you to know is uh, the word teshuva, which is the Hebrew word for repent. You're headed in one direction and you turn in the other direction. The Greek word is metanoian, but teshuva is the word we'll be focusing on later in the book because Jonah is called to Nineveh to invite them to repent, right? And so teshuva. So I want you just to be aware of that and uh, uh, have that in your mind. And then the other interesting thing that will come up in this story is the word malach, which is the word for angel, okay? But it, it's, a, it's a homophone, a homophone which uh, 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 Tim Schroka helped me to see that this week. So they're words that sound alike but are not exactly spelled alike, all right? So like red, I read a book. Red, the color, you see it's spelled differently but it sounds the same. So mehlach can mean sailor or mariner, but it also can mean angel. That's fascinating too. So uh, Hebrew has all these great things, and the story of Jonah has a great play on words. So let's look at Jonah the dove or the destroyer, the son of truth and righteousness. Here we go. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Jonah, which is in the Old Testament among the, the uh, minor prophets. If you're online, I invite you to find your Bible if you will. And if you're here in the room, there are red Bibles in front of you. Now today we're just going to look at chapter 1. And over the next three weeks, we'll look at 2, 3, and 4. So Jonah follows the book of Obadiah. I know you're familiar with Obadiah, I'm sure, right? I'm not, but maybe you are, right? Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, another minor prophet, talks about the destruction of Edom, another enemy of Israel. And it kind of concludes with the destruction, and then we pick up with Jonah, which says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But in the King James Version, it came to pass. It's almost like the beginning of a story. In fact, one literary biblical scholar said it's like once upon a time, right? Uh, Jonah... The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, some scholars really believe Jonah and the whole story happened. Others believe it's a story that folks told as a lesson, right? But either way, it's powerful scripture. So let's jump in. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, we know that, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now let's talk about Nineveh. We'll talk more about it next week. Nineveh is a large city in the ancient world. Uh, we'll learn later in chapter 3, probably over 100,000 people, which in the ancient world was a large city, and three days wide is what uh, is said in the, in the third chapter of Jonah. What we do know uh, archaeologically and historically about Nineveh is it was the capital city of Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. And you may know about the Assyrians Anyway, um, Nineveh was a great city, pr pretty much located uh, on the Tigris-Euphrates Valley uh, in what would be current-day uh, Iraq, okay? That's where you'd find it. In fact, there's an archaeological site. In fact, one of the mounds on the site is called the Mound of Jonah because tradition is that Jonah's buried there. We don't know that. There's also a claim in Israel that they have Jonah's grave nonetheless, right? 
Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were a very powerful uh, military kingdom. They ended up occupying a great deal of the Middle East and Mediterranean shorelines. Uh, they were the predecessor to the Babylonians. They were meanest snakes, all right? They, they, if you rebelled against them, they killed you. They were often, uh, Nineveh was often known as the bloody city because of the way people were killed of any kind of rebellion. They were aggressive, they were hard, uh, they did terrible things to folks. If you rebelled, they might even go to your garden and pour salt in your garden so it could never grow. They sound like lovely people, right? And, and they have p particularly were the folks who invaded the northern kingdom. Remember, Jonah's from the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, right? They invaded and took it over, right? And did a lot of destruction. They almost took Jerusalem, capital city of Judah. It didn't happen, but they were on the edges. People were afraid. People were afraid of the Assyrians. So Nineveh is the capital city of this great kingdom. And God is calling Jonah the dove, right, to go to the city of blood and wickedness and call them to repent. It's not just a visit. He's calling them to turn their lives around. Now, Jonah gets kind of a bad rap. Like, why can't Jonah say yes to God? But I just want you to think about if you were called to go to a city of an enemy of the United States and to travel there on your own and to stand up in the center of that city and say, you need to repent, that's a hard task, right? Let's be honest, right? Uh, it's it's an, an unbelievable task. So God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh and called them to repent of their wickedness. Quite a, quite a challenge. So... Jonah set out, and then it takes a turn, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Tarshish, let's say that together because it's hard. Tarshish, yeah, I'm, I still have trouble all these years. Tarshish, and you'll see in the next few verses, it's mentioned a total of three times. The writer wants us to know that he fled. Not, he did not go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. Now, where is Tarshish? Scholars think maybe uh, it could have been the ancient city of Carthage. It could have been something along the Grecian coastline. But most scholars believe Tarshish was a seaport city in current-day Spain, right? So I want you to think about that, that he's invited to go all the way over to Nineveh, where Baghdad is today, basically. And he says, no, God, I'm going to go to the opposite end of the Mediterranean, to Tarshish, in present-day Spain. So he is trying to flee as far as he can. So it, the scripture says he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the other thing I want you to do if you spend time with this, God's name is lifted up so many times in this book. Unlike Esther or Ruth that were all written in similar times, it's just fascinating how many times God's name comes up. It comes up in the Hebrew form of Yahweh, in the Hebrew form of Adonai. But whatever the case is, it's fascinating how many times God's name is mentioned. So Jonah went down. That's important. So he's traveling down from Galilee to Joppa or Jaffa or today kind of known as Joppa, Joppo. And if you were on the Holy Land trip, you may remember as we passed through Tel Aviv, we drove through the city of Jaffa. It's a port city on the Mediterranean. And he goes there. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is mentioned three times. Now, what I want you to see is he travels down to, to Joppa. He pays his fare. He goes into the ship and is on his way to Tarshish, right, in present-day Spain. 
Now, I, I want you to, I think we missed this nuance. This is an expensive and sacrificial venture for him, right? I mean, today, if you decided to fly to Wichita, Kansas, now, and you went right over here to buy a ticket, it's going to be expensive. Amen? Hello, are you awake out there, right? Yeah, right, it's going to be expensive. And so just think about it. The, the, the port of Joppa was really about not, these aren't cruise lines, right? This isn't Princess, right, or Carnival, right? These are cargo ships, probably carrying olive oil back to Spain, right? And so the reality is there's not much room. So the belief is from scholars that not only was it a quick trip, a quick decision, but he probably paid an enormous amount of money to go on this ship from the port of Joppa to Tarshish because he believed he could flee the presence of God. So he gets on the ship, he's on the ship, and the Lord hurls, that's the word, hurls, a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. So this, this isn't a high wind day, high gust day, high wave day. This is a big storm day. And so much so that the ship could break apart. Then the sailors, the mariners, that little twisted word that could also be angels, were afraid, and each cried to his own God. So it's interesting, here are these foreigners. Most sailors in the ancient world were from all parts of the world, so they weren't all from the same place. They all probably had different perspectives on religion. But it's interesting, they seemed to be spiritual because they did pray to their own gods. Of course, often when we're in deep trouble, that's when we pray harder. Amen, right? So they start praying to their own gods, and then Scripture says they threw cargo overboard uh, so the sh from the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, I'm not a ship kind of person, uh, not nor a sailor nor a naval expert, but I read this week that if your ship's in trouble, sometimes throwing stuff overboard lightens the load and helps you maybe to survive the storm. One of the Hebrew translations, though, is they threw the cargo over to appease the God of the sea. So they were trying to make sacrifices in hopes that they might be delivered. Either way, they're throwing stuff overboard, olive oil, you know, computers, whatever it may be. Everything's going into the sea. But it didn't help. And then we learn this. They're working hard. Amen? They are praying hard. Amen? Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down, gone down, you see, that keeps happening. Not only did he go down to Joppa, now he's gone down into the hold of the ship. He's laying down and is fast asleep. Now, the Hebrew here is not a nap on Sunday afternoons, okay? He's in a deep, deep sleep. The only place this word in Hebrew appears is one other place in the book of Genesis. Do you remember when God wants to create a companion from Adam? And he, says, he puts Adam into a deep sleep? It's the same place, almost near death, frankly. In fact, one of the rabbinical commentaries on this particular text says he was snoring loudly. He was so deeply sleeping. So some of you have a spouse like that. Amen, right? Okay. So they're working hard. They're praying hard. They're trying to seek deliverance. Jonah's taking a, a deep sleep, right? The captain comes down and says to Jonah, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call on your God. 
Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we don't perish. So the captain's actually spiritual and is inviting everybody to pray. He doesn't say, Jonah, can you help throw stuff overboard? He doesn't say, Jonah, could you help with the rudder? Jonah, could you help row? He just asked Jonah to pray. So there's a whole spiritual moment in this story from people who are on the outside. It's interesting, the outsiders, the Gentiles, they're more faithful than the one who's the messenger of God. Amen? The sailors said to one another after this, Come let us cast lots so that we might know on whose account this calamity, now we're using that word, has come upon us. So in the ancient world, often when you were trying to make decisions, you would cast lots. And most people believe it happened this way. It's the, the straws. Have you ever drawn straws? So there's a bunch of straws, but there's a short straw. And whoever gets the short straw is the one, right? So they cast lots. And I know this is going to come as a shock to you. They cast lots and the lot fell on Yes, the dove. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. And then I love this. It's kind of like a meet and greet in the midst of the storm. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? What people are you, right? I mean, it's almost like a check-in at a Kingswood meeting, right? And he says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Big L, because he had told them so. So all of a sudden when they hear this is the God who created the dry land and the sea, they realize this guy's done something against that God and they're in super trouble. And they ask him what he's done. And then they said to him, So what shall we do to you so that the sea may quieten down for us? It's interesting. What can we do to you to end this calamity? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. So what I want you to know is the storm's getting worse and worse. It's not just bad. It's not severely bad. But, but, you know, they all just got an alert on their phone that it's really bad, right? You know, Weather Channel's saying you're not going to make it. You see what I'm saying? It's bad. And he says to them, I love this, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will quieten down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great storm has come upon me, upon you. So Jonah knows why they're in trouble. He knows why this storm is happening. He knows he's been fleeing God's call. He knows he's been fleeing God's presence. And, and he says, the way to handle this is throw me overboard. But what I love about Jonah, it's interesting, um, he doesn't throw himself over. There's no sacrificial care for these men who've been trying to save their lives, throwing cargo over, you know, praying to every God they knew. I mean, they're, they're really trying their best. I, they're frantic. And he says, well, you could throw me over, but I'm not going to go over on my own. So you get a little of Jonah's character here, right? And remember, Jonah represents Israel, and Jonah represents us. Nevertheless, this says something about these men. The men continued to row hard to bring the ship back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. These guys are great, right? Here are these outsiders, these strangers, these foreigners, and the reality is they're trying to spare his life. They're going to row the ship as hard as they can. They're going to get down in the hull and do all the rowing, or I don't know what it looks like, but they're doing everything possible to deliver this guy, but it doesn't do any good. And then they cried out to the Lord. And this says something about their own conversion, right? 
Please, O Lord, capital L, right? They're now addressing God. We pray, do not let us perish on the account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. It's interesting, Jonah has not prayed anything. Jonah has not done anything spiritual at all in this. And these group of men on the outside are praying a beautiful prayer of deliverance and innocence and, and confession about what they're about to do. I found that amazing. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. In fact, in one translation, the sea was calm as glass. And then the men feared the Lord, capital L, even more so, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now, I just want you to think about that. Here are these sailors. They're sailors. And they're from all parts of the world. And they're rough and tough and tumble, right? But they're the ones praying, and they're the ones trying to make the ship survive, and they're the ones who are trying to help Jonah deliver. They're the ones who pray to God, and in the end, when it all happens and they're delivered, they pray to God, they offer a sacrifice like in the temple, and they make a covenant with God. Really? That's shocking, isn't it? The folks who shouldn't be as faithful are, and the one who should be faithful is not and there you see this amazing conversion of this crew. And then the Lord provided a large fish. Sorry to tell you, it doesn't translate well. To swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, scholars have been talking about what does this fish look like? This looks like a whale to me, right? And it could have been a whale, though there are not many whales in the Mediterranean, right? There's some maybe, but not that large. Some people think it might be a great white shark, right? Others think it might have been a fish of some kind, maybe a whale that had gotten lost. Who knows? But it doesn't matter. God provided this fish to swallow three days, three nights. Do you have any sense of where that appears otherwise? Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights, right? It's all connected. What's fascinating is that we often skip over this part of the story. But this part of the story is going to be important to chapter 2. Can you imagine, if you will, being in the belly of a fish? Really? You don't have a cell phone to turn on to go, oh, there are the ribs, right? You can't see. And not only that, you, you really don't know where you are. Where you are, where you are in relationship to things. Because it's not like the fish sits still till the three days are up. Fish continues to live his life, right? Swims along, eats some other things, bumps into a coral reef. I don't know what happens, but you're in constant chaos. A friend of mine did one of those, I forgot what they're called, uh, those tanks. Have you ever heard of this? You get in the tank, it's warm water, and they seal it up, and you, forget, you can't tell whether you're up or down. It sounds like a nightmare to me, right? But, I, but it sounds chaotic. You lose touch with every point of reference. And that's where Jonah is, along with a bunch of fish and stomach acid. Doesn't it sound like a beautiful space, right? Three days and three nights. So as we live with this story of Jonah, there's a lot to learn here. Certainly that outsiders are insiders and insiders are outsiders. That the people you think are going to be the faithful ones aren't. And God actually has a heart for those on the outside rim, right? 
But what you're also going to see and experience is that God will not let us go when God is calling us. Now, this story is helpful to all of us in the room who are facing something or needing to deal with something or ignoring something or not taking responsibility for something that we need to. Amen, right? And, and that's important. And I don't want to minimize that. That if there's something you need to do, something you've been avoiding, something you need to take on, whatever that is in your life, this story of Jonah says, you better do it. Amen, right? Even if it's chaotic. But I, I think we, we, we need to move a little bit further out. God calls all of us. Amen? Ooh, the silence is deafening, right? God calls all of us. Amen? Right. All of us. Not just the pastor, not just the choir. All of us. And sometimes God calls us to difficult things. Amen? I mean, really difficult things. To do something, to teach something, to lead something, to go on a mission trip. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's to start a ministry. Maybe it's to participate in ministry. Maybe it's to be more prayerful. I don't know what God is calling you to do. Maybe it's forgiving somebody. Maybe it's holding somebody accountable. Maybe it's a hard row that you have to take, right? But sometimes God is calling us to something, and we'd rather do anything in the world. We'd, we'd go to Tarshish in a minute, right, to avoid it. So I want you to think this week in your time of prayer and reflection, where is my Nineveh? Where is God calling me? What do I need to do to, to answer that call and to be faithful to God, what, what God wants me to do, to be, to challenge? What's the hard thing that God is calling you to do? Because you can run all you want. But you can't hide. Because we read in Psalm 139, our God is a God of love that will search us out and 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 search us out, us out again. What is your Nineveh? 